The scripture reading for this week's passage is Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 through 13. That's Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 through 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you underneath. And when you can turn to page 772. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. see some of the guys limping, it's because uh, they play football. They did well, I think, um, second place? Yes, did well. Very proud of you guys. And uh, some of the ladies that I spoke with can't wait till the co-ed flag football too, to get some of their aggression out. But uh, we had some fun watching you guys, and you guys played well. Um, <clears throat> I mentioned this time and time again, but this week we're going to start a smaller group. So I encourage you to join a group and to have a group that's accountable to you, uh, that you're accountable to, that you'll pray with, that you could grow together with. And you have to forgive me um, if I'm sounding a little down. I have this huge headache right now, but I'm going to try to power through it. Uh, If I can't do it, I have my notes, Pastor Paul. You can just come and read it, and we'll be fine, right? But uh, let's pray before we begin. Our God and Father, we ask you, imploring you, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, to mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your word and to give, it, and to give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you, and to serve and honor you as we should, so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and edify our neighbor by our good example, rendering to God the love and the obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents, since it has pleased you to graciously receive us among the number of your servants and children. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Familiar stories have a way of becoming legend uh, while losing the detail record. Uh, case in point is there was a movie out that when it came out I was very excited for and I showed some people even here when they were in youth group and I was their youth pastor, uh, was Bruce Lee's master and his name is Ipman, right? And we showed this movie and you know, there he is, Bruce Lee's master, Eatman, destroying everybody. And there's like 50 people jumping up on him, and he's just, you know, kung fuing them away. Um, when you ask his son and his grandson, it's like, what do you think about the movie? And they would just respond, you know, we're very honored that you would have so much respect for our father. But they would also admit, this is legend, like, you know, Iman didn't go around like kicking 50 people's butt at the same time, at one time. And some of, for some of you, like, what? Are you serious? I lost all respect, but, you know, it's time to grow up. But uh, there is a lot of legend out there, and sometimes when we hear stories, again and again, it becomes legend. It becomes this thing where it becomes um, just kind of puffed up. And familiar stories have a way of becoming like that, becoming legend. And I want to share with you a very familiar story today. Today's story is a very familiar story. This is a story that many may be familiar with and now understand it as just some grandiose event that just happened. And then if we asked you, what's the significance of today's passage? We wouldn't be sure of what it is. This story in particular falls under that kind of umbrella. You know, it's been quite the journey Jesus had with his disciples. And one may wonder why Matthew, along with Mark and Luke, by the way, would have this particular event recorded in the life of Jesus Christ. You know, when you read this story, you might be like, why is it here in this particular place and time? And why is it recorded with such detail? Or maybe not. Maybe you're just like, eh. But let's get to it. And in the word we have read, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother, and his John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. You know, the number of days recorded here in between events is a very rare thing for Matthew to do, or even Mark or Luke but it's recorded. And the fact that it has been recorded should show us in the very least that we ought to connect the coming event. So after six days, this and this happened, so we ought to connect the coming event with the previous event that just happened. This event is connected to the confession by Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you had read the passage prior to the message last week, some of you wondered how the confession and the rock and the denying of yourself all fit together until it was shown when we read it together and we exposited God's word. You know, this is why we in this church, in our church, we value exposition so much. We go over, we go over its importance in our membership training and we want to make it known that God has intended for his people to establish the priority of his word in his church. 
And how do we get to be a healthy, maturing church? It is by recognizing that God is going to do this by His Spirit through His Word. It's not anything else that we have a healthy church. When I was a younger man, growing up, uh, learning in seminary, we would go through all these strategies, these church functions, what should we do, what program should we have, only to recognize that this is not how God's church will flourish. The primary way God's church flourishes is by His Spirit through His Word. This is why we want exposition to be lifted up the way it is in our church, but also in our daily life. So what is exposition or expository preaching? You know, it's quite simple, but it's quite spectacular. The simplicity of it is the point of the sermon is the point of the passage. That's it. The point of the sermon is the point of the particular passage in Scripture. The preacher just doesn't preach what's in his heart and then find passages to support those thoughts, but the preacher should have his mind shaped by Scripture. Increasingly, the preacher and subsequently the church will have its minds shaped and transformed by Scripture. And this is what I believe what the Lord has been doing in many of us and many of you over the past few months and even years. We are people that subject ourselves to the word of God. And as we do that, we see that just as Jesus taught his disciples, his spirit is teaching us too. And it's glorious. It's glorious because we do not deserve it and we receive it purely on grace. That's how we get to this special, special place in chapter 17 of the Gospel of Matthew today. Six days after the previous events took place, the confession, the rock, the self-denial, this means that this was still fresh in the minds of the disciples. The prior teaching of Jesus going to Jerusalem to suffer and die was still fresh in their minds. Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to a high mountain. If you are familiar with the other gospel accounts, you would know that Peter, James, and John were in particular special disciples that Jesus would separate even further from the rest of the apostles. But even here in Matthew, where you would normally have a definite article in front of nouns to separate them, for example, like the cat, the girl, and the songbird. If I were to tell a story, I would say that. But this definite article is only placed in front of Peter when we see the three grouped together as if to show these three were a known group. And again, if you had read the other gospel accounts before, you would know that this is true. Jesus takes the three and leads them up a high mountain. This shows us that this isn't just some random stroll, but a purposeful journey up a particular place. You know, it takes effort to climb high mountains in the area. I remember climbing Mount Sinai, and it took me about three hours to climb 7,500 feet with a group of, small group of people. And because I wanted to see the sunrise in Mount Sinai, we left a little bit after 1 a.m., and then we just trekked up so that we could see the sunrise. Last week, I had likened the journey that Jesus took the disciples to Caesarea Philippi 
like a retreat, right? The retreat isn't over. In fact, what we are seeing now, and this is a pun intended, what we are seeing now is the pinnacle of this retreat. In verse 2, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. You know, after he leads the three up the high mountain, he is transfigured or transformed. In the Greek, metamorpho, which just means to change. How did he change? His face shone like the sun, and clothes became white as light. This is reminiscent, if you went through Exodus with us, of Moses, because his face shone as well after he had talked with God. Aaron and the Israelites were so afraid once Moses came down and his face was shining, they were so afraid they had to put a veil on Moses' face. However, this is entirely different because even Jesus' clothes were white as light. There is no veil that would have covered this shining glory. How are you going to cover something that shines through things? Moses' face was reflecting God's glory. What the disciples were experiencing now was something entirely on a different plane. And because the word says transfigured before them, we see that what is implied is that this transfiguration was for their benefit. Last week, we went over how Jesus told his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ because he would be the one teaching them what it means to be the Christ. And this is still a part of that same story. Jesus shows the three his pre-incarnate glory. And because of verse 28 of the previous chapter, I tend to also think that it also has something to do with showing them his coming exaltation. This is the glorious person of Jesus Christ in his fullness shown to the disciples. What would have also been confirmed was Jesus' saying that he would be the suffering Messiah. How is that? It would have prompted the disciples to look back at this event and marvel at the self-humiliation that brought him to the cross. How far Jesus humbled himself to die on the cross. How far did he come down? What kind of glory did he take off to come? Seeing a glimpse of this exalted being, what they would see in contrast was the depth of humility that their Lord had. Verse three, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. <clears throat> I said again, this is a book written to the Jewish people. This is a book written to the Jews. There is a question that a historian has been asked. How do you know that God exists? And he goes, I have two words. How do you know that God exists? This historian said famously, two words. The Jews. There is no way this group of people could have ever survived if not for the divine intervention that God had given them. And what we see here, and if you're Jewish and you're reading this, appeared before the glorified, transfigured Jesus Christ as Moses and Elijah. This has huge connotations. Not only are the disciples marveling at Jesus' transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are in front of them just talking to Jesus. 
And how significant is this? Moses was the model for the ultimate or eschatological, but ultimate prophet to come. In Deuteronomy 18.18, God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, meaning Moses, a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That's Moses. Elijah is significant because Elijah was the forerunner that would make a way for the end, for the end times, for the coming of the end. Malachi 4.5, as we reviewed last week, says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Not only that, but both men were chosen by God during times of transition. Moses to introduce the covenant and Elijah to show the people resolve in adhering to it. Both received a revelation and experience of God's glory. Where? On the mountain. Both suffered rejection from their own people. And together they summarize well the phrase, the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. All this is going on, and we get to verse 4. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. It doesn't say how they knew that the people that Jesus was talking to was Moses and Elijah. They just knew. But if you look at this and like see this, uh, Peter was tripping. He has no idea what is going on and what to say. The verb that's translated that we see here, Peter said, is literally Peter answered. Peter answered to Jesus. What did he answer? There was no question. (laughs) Or does he know? Or does he know what he's saying? The word for tense is skenos, which can be translated as tabernacle. So one could imagine that what Peter was trying to say or fumbling around trying to say was that he wanted to build three tabernacles because he was so grateful to see such a glorious sight. A tabernacle, if you don't know, is seen as a royal tent, something that would temporarily house or shelter a divine being like the tabernacle the Israelites had in the wilderness. But this would mean that Peter is equating Moses, Elijah, with Jesus. Either way, Peter was tripping, or he had no idea what he was talking about because he was equating Jesus with the other two. And Mark verifies this by telling us in his account that he had no idea what to say because they were terrified. This is when Peter is interrupted. He was still speaking in verse 5, when behold... A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. A bright cloud appears. What is that? Bright cloud? Overshadow? It's like, how does this even make sense? And overshadow in the Greek could also mean to envelop. But no matter what it was exactly, God speaks through it. And he goes, this is my beloved son. There are articles before beloved and son. Meaning it would sound something like this, but it's awkward. That's why it's not translated that way. 
This is my, the beloved, the son. And remember Peter's confession. So this would have pointed back to the messianic title that Peter said about Jesus. And this would have affirmed that, that Jesus is the Christ as well as the living God. Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But the voice in the cloud continues, with whom I am well pleased. This is referring back to Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. A further affirmation of his Messiahship. And then the voice ends with this. Listen to him. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This is incredible. All the things that, that must have been seeing, Peter bumbling around, he doesn't know what to say, I'll, I'll, I'll make tents uh, for the three of you. And when he's interrupted by this bright cloud that envelops them, and when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. You know, when I was younger, I really never got why terror would make anyone fall on their faces. If something terrifies you, if something truly terrifies you, what would you do? What would you do? Run, right? Well, that's what I would do. If something's terrifying, I'd just run, ah, and then run. But let's keep on thinking along these lines, right? And I was thinking about it. What happens when the thing you're running away from catches up to you? Or like in a horror movie, and an instant just appears in front of you, like running because you're so scared, and boom, it appears right in front of you. Then what do you do? Because you can't run away anymore. Then you faint, right? That's what I, I mean, you faint, like, oh, and then you faint. What happens when you wake up, though, and it's still there? What happens when you wake up and it's still there? Ah, then you fall on your face, terrified. This is the ultimate expression of terror. You can't escape. There is no escape from this terror. And you fall on your face. That's exactly what's happening to the disciples. A bright cloud from which the voice was spoken had already overshadowed or enveloped them. Where could they go to flee or hide? What happens when such a terrifying and dreadful presence envelops you? But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. I'm going to admit that I teared up a little as I studied this verse. Again, when fear overtakes them, this time a more legitimate time. Any more legitimate time than other for being afraid. But it's Jesus again who comes again to touch them, speak kindly to them, and relieve them of their terror. Rise. Have no fear. Dia Carson would write that this next verse is pregnant with meaning. Pregnant with meaning because they had fallen face down to the ground only later to see that when they were relieved of their terror, who did they see? Only Jesus. Concerning the revelation of who Jesus is, all other revelations pale in comparison 
All other revelations pale in comparison to the revelation of Jesus Christ. As we have gone verse by verse so far in the Bible, what we see highly and most exalted is the person of Jesus Christ, and the disciples get to experience this firsthand. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. In Matthew, this is Jesus' fifth and last time he tells his disciples to tell no one. However, he gives them permission to tell everything after he had been raised again from the dead. Up until this point, there would have been no way for the disciples to understand what he meant if he had put that attachment earlier in his ministry. Why does Jesus keep on telling people not to tell anyone? Again, it's because people's superficial and political idea of what the Messiah or Son of God was would have complicated and convoluted the mission. But now that he has this addition to the command of tell no one with until the Son of Man is raised from the dead, it gives the disciples a clearer path and purpose to the disclosure of what they had been taught and shown. And the disciples asked him in verse 10, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? After everything that had just happened, of all the things that they could have asked Jesus, imagine you experienced this. Of all the things you could have asked Jesus, they ask him this question. Then, referring to what was, asked, what was told to them before, then, why do the scribes say that Elijah, first Elijah, must come? <clears throat> it couldn't have min- meant the chronological order, which at first glance you might think, oh, it's the chronological order that they were confused about. Meaning that they thought that the fulfillment of Malachi 4.5 was at the transfiguration. Because Malachi 4.5 is stating that Elijah would come and restore all things. So if Elijah is supposed to be the forerunner to restore all things, restoring all things would mean that there is now justice in the world, not only that true worship. If Elijah is the forerunner to bring this about, how can it be that you came out before Elijah? We saw Elijah. So it wasn't talking about chronological order. But they were understanding it to be this. If Elijah is the forerunner to bring about the restoration of all things, just as it says in Malachi 4 or 5, how can it be that you must suffer and die? That's the question. That's the real question. There is no framework in their mind where the Messiah would suffer and let alone die. In fact, if you talk to devout Jews today, This is absolutely the case. The Messiah doesn't come to die. He comes to conquer. There's no death in the Messiah. There's no suffering in the Messiah. There is no framework in the Jewish mind that this would have made sense. So that's why they ask, and why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Because Elijah, the forerunner to the Messiah, will come, and then there's restoration to all things. Then everything's good. That's when the Messiah comes, right? And this is verse 11. Jesus answers, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, 
but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. What is the restoration of all things? It's the inauguration of the former state this world was in before the fall. So Elijah's forerunning is to usher in this restoration. Jesus uses the present tense, translated as Elijah does come, referring to something that is past, and uses a future tense, he will restore all things, which points to a not yet, but has begun, inaugurated state. Yes, what the, what the scribes taught is right, but they forgot to take this into account, and Jesus clarifies it. Elijah, just like every other Old Testament prophet, came and they did not recognize him, just like every other Old Testament prophet. They inflicted their own will on him. They inflicted suffering upon the prophets. In between the prophet and the restoration is suffering. John the Baptist is Elijah coming the forerunner to the restoration of all things. And he goes, John the Baptist did come and fulfill his mission, but he was killed doing it. And if John the Baptist's restoration of all things led him to be killed, the Messiah will also suffer in this way. He was teaching them a new framework in which the Messiahship really was. The inauguration of the restoration of all things in this world without sin, but it's something even deeper than that. Through the suffering of the humble Messiah, through his death, resurrection, and ascension, through the glimpse of the transfiguration, what's the end goal? What's the end goal? What did you just see in the transfiguration? What's the end goal? What's the, what is the restoration of all things? What's the ultimate goal that you see here? Isn't it fellowship with Jesus? He is the ultimate revelation. He is the revelation of revelations. This is what is being ushered in. Our fallen state was due to sin, which severed the relationship between man and God. What the Messiah will do is unsever or restore that relationship. The wrath of God is a terrible and terrifying thing. A sinful people cannot stand before even the theophany of a bright cloud, let alone could they stand in the presence of a holy God. They would die we would die. Jesus is the key that restores us so that we can stand before a holy God without blemish or spot. What is the restoration of all things? What's the point? And we see it here in the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the point. He is the gift. He is the revelation. And this gift is given to you as you believe and have faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, just as the disciples did. Our faith is in Him and in His Word. And we see that the restoration, the ultimate point, what we've been waiting for, is fellowship, finally with our creator.
with our God, and that is made possible through his Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And this is why we proclaim and profess and confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. To him be all the glory and honor. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this incredible revelation, that you have given us this incredible gift of Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to admit that we, when we didn't know, we just took this for granted. Maybe we went to church because, you know, it was about friends or fellowship or getting an agenda somehow done. But we recognize now that you have gathered your people unto yourself for you, for Jesus. And we thank you that you restore us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we give you the glory now. We want to be a people that has faith in you. We want to be a people that profess the gospel and hold on to the truth all the days of our lives. So God, please be with your church. Empower her with your Holy Spirit through your word. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on the word that we've been given. And let's pray that God would continue just as he was transfigured. But what we want is through his word for us to be transformed and renewed and changed so that we can be with Jesus for all eternity. Let's pray.